The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is very interesting. It is about what happens when fraud occurs with with commercial entities and, and small businesses and large businesses rather than consum- consumers. And there is so much of that going on. And I had been reading this article in the Daily Journal, which is the legal newspaper for the state, state of California, and it was called Cyber Attacks, Land, Banks, and Litigation. And this uh, there was quite a bit about this. And I found this attorney who happens to be in Maine, um, Daniel J. Mitchell, he is a shareholder at Bernstein Schur, and he represented Patco that had a very good recovery. Patco was a business that, that was in a lawsuit that I'm gonna, he's going to tell you about in a few minutes, but he's been very successful in these kind of cases, and these are not easy cases to handle, and I do think it's so important if we have our business school here on the campus, and also we have all of our business people driving by, whether they're small businesses or startups or whatever, they need to know what their rights are. So let me tell you a little bit about Dan. Dan Mitchell practices in Bernstein Schur's litigation and business law practice groups, and he's the co-chair of the firm's data security team. Dan represented Patco Construction in a successful appeal before the First Circuit Court of Appeals and Patco Construction versus People's United Bank. The decision broke new ground on how courts should evaluate the commercial reasonableness of internet banking security procedures under Article Section 4A of the Uniform Commercial Code. Dan also maintains a diverse civil litigation practice and trial practice. He's been recognized by Chambers USA for commercial litigation, and he is AV rated by Martindale Hubble, which is very good. And he's been featured in numerous publications for his work on the Patco case, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Wired. Most recently, Dan was named to Bank Info Security's list of top 10 influencers for 2014. You can learn more about him at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Also, you can learn more about him at Bernstein Sure, that's B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N-S-H-U-R.com in beautiful Maine. So thank you so much, Dan, for joining us this morning. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, uh, I really appreciate it, Mary. Well, let's talk about that Patco case, because I think having people understand what happened to this construction company is really important and how that relates to all of the businesses out here. Sure. Well, um, Patco is a construction company in southern Maine, relatively small uh, company by national standards, you know, pretty good-sized company by southern Maine standards. Um, and they uh, did a reasonably good job, I think, for a small business of being attentive to security. Um, but over the course of about a week in May of 2012, they got hit by uh, cyber thieves. And what happened was, as, so ha- as happens so often in these cases, someone in the office um, uh, clicked on a link. A person who was one of the bookkeeping folks had clicked on a link. Some malware was downloaded onto her computer. Uh, her keystrokes were recorded. And when she went in to do online banking, uh, you know, obviously all of her keystrokes were recorded. Oh. It was, a, it was a, uh, a, a, a Trojan called Zeus, which, which at the time was a uh, particularly popular um, uh, Trojan that uh, bank uh, uh, cyber thieves were, were using. And I think it's probably still in use today, although there, there, are, a lot, there are a lot more out there. Right. And so all of her keystrokes are recorded. And... The bank that they dealt with, uh, which was a, a subsidiary of People's United Bank, which is a regional bank here in, in the New England area, also did a reasonably good job of security in the sense that they had uh, a pretty decent uh, system that evaluated individual transactions and assigned risk scores to them, which was fine, except that the only uh, 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 layer of security that the that the system imposed, other than someone's user ID and password, was challenge questions. Mm-hmm. So things you know that we're accustomed to, you know, seeing, you know, what was your mom's maiden name? Stuff right, like that. right, right. So the challenge questions uh, uh, were the were, were the backup layer of uh, authentication. But the problem was that the bank uh, configured its system so that the challenge questions got asked. Basically, every time there was uh, an ACH transaction involving uh, a business customer. So if if the transaction was for a dollar or more, the system was configured so that the challenge questions would get asked. And that risk scoring engine that I mentioned, one of the things that it did was, uh, you know, it would assign a risk score and it would evaluate whether a transaction was very risky. But the only thing that the system did with that information was it would it would prompt uh, a customer again to answer its challenge questions, which it already was doing, if, if you know, basically for every ACH transaction. So they had this pretty good security system that they really didn't that they really didn't configure properly and really didn't use properly. And um, you know, the 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 other problem was that um, uh, when the when the system flagged transactions as particularly risky, the bank wasn't set up to do anything with that information. So oh. now, <laughs> now well, well, you know, nowadays, yeah. right? I mean, we all talk, we, we've all heard stories, or maybe it's happened to us, you know, we're using our credit card at a different, you know, we're, we're on a cross-country trip, and we're using our credit card someplace that's, you know, looks out of profile, and we get a call, hey, is that really you? Right, so, right. So, you know, companies are equipped to deal with this, and banks are equipped to deal with this now. And frankly, the bank that was on the other side of the case and Petco pretty quickly set up a different system to deal with that information. And so they would, um, uh, 
uh, you know, now they'll, they'll place a call, you know, or they'll, they'll reach out to the customer. So at any rate, at this time, at that time, back when this, these happened, the bank didn't do anything with that information. Um, I have a question. Co- I have yeah, a, sure. Yeah. So, um, so if you had to answer a question, some kind of security question, you would type it in. So if you typed it in, then that security question would be answered and it would be captured by the key, key logging the, software. The key logger, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, 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 so and the, the, and the problem is when you, when, when, uh, the reason why challenge questions have effect, the reason why they are, a, you know, they can be an effective um, uh, backup layer of authentication is, is that you put them in infrequently. They're right. designed to be used infrequently because the more often you, you type them in, the more you expose the information right. to being captured by a keylogger. So right. the problem was the bank didn't really understand this as well as it should have. Oh. And so it set up its system so that these challenge questions got inputted very often every time, you know, every time a business customer did an ACH yeah. transaction. So Patco used... ACH transfers for things like its payroll, you know, every two weeks, and it sure. had a very set pattern. It didn't use them. It didn't use them a lot. It, you know, didn't pay all its bills with ACH transactions right, right, like substances right. do. But but it had a very regular pattern, and the transactions that were involved in the cyber thefts, um, you know, really obviously didn't meet the pattern. They were going mm-hmm. to a lot of different recipients who you know the, the, the typically didn't receive money they were in amounts that were much larger and the bank's um, risk scoring system you know rated these transactions as off the charts risky but it didn't do anything with that information oh, it allowed the transactions to go through oh my gosh and it, so and it, it processed yeah. them so <laughs> So, they so then haven't, when they Patco, haven't. after a few days of this, yeah. Patco realized what was going on because the bank, one, one of the accounts to which um, funds had been sent, uh, you know, was a bad account and, and the bank got a notice that, well, these funds didn't go through. And so it generated by paper mail, by, by snail oh. mail, it generated <laughs> a notice that got sent to, you know, Patco's owner. And it came in the mail, and it said, you know, well, this this transaction you attempted to perform didn't go through. Uh. And he said, that's not a transaction that we attempted to perform. And so he immediately, you know, talked to the bookkeeper, and they figured out that there was something going on, and they contacted the bank. The bank was able to reverse some of the charges, but Patco still was out about $400,000. Oh, my God. So, so, so what did they long? do? They Wait. went to the bank, and yeah. they said, hey, this is a problem. This is what happened. Yeah. Um, and the bank didn't try to suggest that Patco was, that it was an inside job or anything, but the bank said basically, look, um, our system, our, our, our security system is commercially reasonable, and the reason why this happened is because you allowed this mm. malware to come onto your machine. Yeah. This is your responsibility, mm. and we're not going to... We're not going to do anything to resolve this. This is unfortunate. This is very unfortunate, but it's your responsibility. Patco, you know, obviously disagreed. We attempted to negotiate something. The bank really had drawn a, a pretty firm, <clears throat> taken a firm stand on it. Patco ended up suing them. We were in federal district court here in Maine, uh, in Portland, and we actually lost at the trial level. Mm-hmm. So the, the the judge who decided the case at the trial level said, close call, but I think that the bank's security procedures were commercially reasonable. Mm-hmm. And we're operating in this environment under Article 4A of the Uniform Commercial Code, which is uh, an article that deals with electronic funds transfers. So the, banks, the, 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 the bank won at the trial court level. We appealed it to the First Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston, which is down in Boston. Um, you know, we did all the briefing. We did the argument. And the First Circuit Court of Appeals 
reversed the trial court and said, no, you know, we, we think based on everything that we've reviewed that the bank security procedures weren't commercially reasonable. You know, the way it configured the system to ask the challenge questions on every transaction wasn't reasonable. The way they had a risk scoring engine that they didn't and they and they generated information that they didn't do anything with was not reasonable and so we we you know we find differently and they reversed the trial court and and we subsequently then you know got the there were there were a couple of very small minor issues that it sent the case back to the trial court on but we ended up you know resolving those very quickly and the bank paid the, the entire account loss oh good good now, that doesn't always happen. We've seen many, many cases where that has not happened, That's right? right? And let's, That's let's, right. let's talk about this uh, a little bit because all of my business people driving by in our business school here just may not be familiar. Explain a little bit about um, Article 4A, would you? Sure. Well, you know, the Uniform Commercial Code is a set of um, uh, provisions that that are promulgated, promulgated by a national organization um, that basically suggests, in a lot of different areas, it suggests uniform ways of approaching different commercial issues. And states then will choose whether to adopt the, the, those uniform standards, or no, uniform standards or not. And the reason why they're effective is because typically most states will adopt them, so that if you're a business operating in one state, you have some idea of what the law is going to be like governing a particular set of transactions in another state. So Article 4A is the article that deals with electronic funds transfers and how to allocate the risk of loss between a bank and its customer when there's a, when there's a fraud. It was adopted back in... Uh, the late 80s, early 90s. So it was written at a time when, um, you know, no one did internet banking. Uh, it was really designed around uh, wire transfers, which were which were the primary electronic means of transferring funds at that time. So um, Maine adopted the Uniform Commercial Code, as did most every other state. All 50 states have adopted it. Um, it hasn't been changed since it was adopted in Maine, and I think in most other states that's true. It hasn't been changed. Um, and that is the legal regime that you've got to operate under when you're a business and you go through this, this type of situation and you have this type of loss. And what the statute says is, in that situation, the, the initial starting point is that the bank actually is responsible in those situations. However, the bank can shift the risk of loss back to the customer if it can demonstrate three things. First, it demonstrates that there was an agreement between the bank and the customer um, that the bank would use a set of security procedures to authenticate transactions. Secondly, those security procedures were commercially reasonable. And third, the bank followed the security procedures in good faith. And if the bank can demonstrate those three things, it shifts the risk of loss back to the customer. And so the fight in these cases becomes about you know whether there was an agreement whether the security procedures were commercially reasonable and whether the bank followed them right. properly and in good faith. Um, and so businesses uh, you know, operate under a different regime than consumers. Consumers are protected under federal law. It's a federal law called the Electronic, Electronic Funds Transfer Act. And under Regulation E, under that, under that statute, under that federal statute, consumers are protected. So if I'm a, you know, if this happens in my personal account, it's not going to be an issue. Well, wait, I'm, wait, wait. Let me stop you there because there are a lot of times that 
that you say, okay, if I tell you within, you know, three days, I think it's yep. three days, or and then if you know, then obviously I can get some all of it back. And if I tell you within sixty days, it, I can get more of it back, but yeah. less of it back. But the truth of the matter is, it's even hard for consumers because I have dealt with this, and it should be easy, right? You should be able to prove it, but it, it's not always the case. But it's, yeah. it's far worse with business. So yeah, that's you right. Are At least there's a mechanism under federal law right. for consumers to be able to do it, and right. And theoretically, they're protected at least. Yes, yes. You know, and and, and uh, it, so businesses operate under a different under a different regime. And um, uh, you know, this is the Article Four A is a statute that, like I said, was enacted in the late late '80s, early '90s at a time when uh, there was no internet banking. So I, I think that there's a good argument to be made that there are. Uh, you know, there are ways in which that statute really ought to be updated. I mean, um, the yes. idea that, uh, look, back in the late 80s, early 90s when this was adopted and we were talking about wire transfers, um, security procedures were much more straightforward and simple. I mean, if you were talking about, okay, I'm going to perform a wire transfer, you know, when I do that, um, I'm going to call a particular person at the bank who knows me. I know that person. Right. I'm going to tell them what the tra- what the transfer is about. Right. You know, maybe they're going to call me back, and we're going to we're going to you know have a relatively simple set of authentication procedures in that circumstance. Now. You know, with internet banking, obviously, it's vastly more complicated. And the notion that your typical uh, business uh, customer is going to be sophisticated enough to understand any of those procedures, right. I think, really is not. It's a fallacy. Um, and, uh, you know, the reality is that even sophisticated business customers, I mean, you don't have the expertise to be able to understand, you know, what a bank's um, uh, uh, procedures are to deal with internet you know, banking fraud. Uh, and, and they're not going to tell you everything anyway. They'll they'll have on their websites, you know, their security procedures, but you don't know all of the, the ways that they handle right. it, and they won't tell you, right? And and there's an argument to be made in some circumstances that they shouldn't tell right, you because right. it, it would be bad for security. Exactly. If they published what their security procedures were, it right. would be bad for security. But under Article 4A, there's this this notion that the bank and the customer are going to have an agreement about what the security procedures are and they're going to mutually agree to them. And so in that circumstance, it's fair to bind the, to bind the customer, but it really is from a different age. It's not, it just is not uh, current right. with the way things operate nowadays. And, and a lot of businesses don't know this. You know, they, they don't understand until something happens that they're not protected. They assume that they are. Exactly. I mean, this even happens if, if you're listening and you're a business person and you have a business credit card, you are not protected by the Fair Credit Billing Act in the same way that, that you know, I, I don't know if the 4A comes into being for credit cards too, but you you are not, if you tell them within 60 days, it doesn't matter. They yeah. don't have to give you your it money doesn't. back. Article 4A doesn't come into play with credit cards. Yeah, but credit card, but you're not covered by, in, if you have a consumer credit card, you are covered by the Fair Credit Billing Act, but if you have a business credit card and there's fraud on it, you may not ever get your money back. That's you, right. And so people who are driving by need to know that there is a huge difference. And I would suggest, and, and I'm sure you have some suggestions, but for me as a business owner, I have alerts set up with my right. with my bank that any time that there's any kind of transaction, any kind of e- electronic funds transaction or anything like that that's, you know, c- wiring money, I immediately get a notification by email that's immediately. Right. And then if it, and then I look if if that's something I don't know, you know, because I do electronic banking for, you know, paying payroll 
and things mm-hmm. like that. I don't sure. for, for checks, but I look and see, is that right? Or if I'm paying a credit card, something like that, then I'll see. But if there's something I don't recognize, I will get it immediately, and you have to tell them immediately. What is the timeline? I know that um, with these with Patco, they told them within a few days. Is there a specific timeline within 4A? Not, not under Article 4A, no. It really comes down to, to whether the customer acted reasonably. Yeah. Uh, and that's a that's a, a term that is defined, you know, case by case. So uh, unlike some, you know, there data breach notification statutes, for example, where there's a specific time frame given, there, there's no specific time frame under Article 4A. Um, but you know, you mentioned you mentioned uh, getting um, email alerts or you know text message alerts. That's a great simple thing that people can do. Or and, and if you don't want to get them for every transaction, you can get them to alert you um, when your balance goes above or below certain preset levels or when yes. a charge occurs above a certain amount yes. or when what you get within a certain preset distance of your credit limit. Right. So there are, you know, it's not just because there is a balance and I think banks would tell you, well, you know, we have to maintain a balance. Our customers don't want to get constantly bombarded with information about this stuff. You know, they don't, there's, you know, some people find it to be too much. And so, you know, we, we need to find a balance between security and convenience. And to some extent, I mean, you could or you could make an argument. I suppose that there's that, that argument has some weight. But the kinds of things that 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 we're talking about are things that you can do that would not be a constant inconvenience. Uh, even folks who don't want to be bothered, you know, with every transaction, could could take certain steps to protect them. You know, sort of on the on the mar- uh, on the extremes. Right. You know, and another, if, they, another, if they don't another, use, yeah. I was going to say, if they don't have a lot of electronic funds transfers. Like, I don't have a lot, so I don't get them that often. I get them yeah. from my payroll and certain things, so I can look at those, and that helps me to know. And I also do, you know, tell me when my bank goes up, you know, when yeah. there's a check over a certain amount or whatever. I do, yeah. because there could be check fraud as well. I mean, I have had businesses that called me that they had someone else created checks, you know, that, that were using their account number with a different name. So oh, that wow. money was siphoned out of their account. So you want to see when there's when there's transfers even by checks because that could be something. Sure. But you know what I thought was interesting in the case that I that I read about in this um I don't know if you saw the article that you were quoted in but in that um choice escrow, choice and escrow land case. yeah in that case the the bank said that that choice escrow uh, didn't take advantage of some of the things like that like the alerts and so that's the 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 bank won on that. Well, that's right, and that and that's why that case was completely different than Patco. And it was one particular feature. It was it's something called dual control, which is um, a system in which when uh, the business wants to perform a, uh, in this case, it was wire transfers. When they wanted to do a wire transfer, one person would 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 initiate uh the the transaction first and then another person in the office would have to log in with a different password and and user id and then confirm the transaction right. and this is very common dual control is very common it's a good system um you know it is much harder to compromise or it's less likely that that a hacker is going to compromise two people's computers right. as opposed to one um so you know like the the patco scenario that i mentioned one person was typing information in on a keyboard Right. You know, to, to penetrate dual control, if there were two people typing information and they both have to have the malware on their right, machine, right, it's right. possible. It's certainly possible, but it's, it just makes it harder. All these things are about putting up extra hurdles. So it's an extra hurdle. And in that case, 
Choice Escrow is an escrow company. They did mostly, I think, real estate closing, uh, you know, escrows. Yeah. And and they were a small, very small office. And the bank, uh, you know, when they signed up for electronic banking, the bank suggested to them that they use dual control. It didn't right. force it on them, but it suggested it. And Choice Escrow said it wouldn't really be convenient for us, so so we don't want to do it. So the bank had a um, uh, you know process in place where when a customer declined dual control, it would have them sign. Oh. Essentially, what amounted to a waiver, oh, and they would say, "Okay, oh. well, we was, we want you to just sign off here, saying that we've explained to you the, the the benefits of dual control, and we've explained to you the risks of not using it, so that you understand." And Choice, you know, did that, and they said, "Yes, we understand." And then they had, uh, you know, they got hit. They they had. Um, uh, I, I don't know that the case discusses exactly what the mechanism of the fraud was, but that it probably it was, uh, was four hundred and forty thousand to an account in Cyprus. Yeah, and 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 so um, then they ended up suing the bank, and the bank raised as a defense that you know yeah. we we had a commercially reasonable alternative that we offered to you, which you declined. And under Article Four A, there's a provision in there that that speaks to this, and it says. You know, if the if the bank offers to a customer a commercially reasonable method of security, which the customer uh, in writing declines, um, and there's a loss, then you know, that that's on the customer. It's not on the bank. So that's so, what I'm worried about. If people are don't sign up for these alerts, that that might be used. Well, you didn't. You know, you did nothing to protect yourself. Yeah, it's, I'm it's, a little worried about that. It's possible. You know, it is possible. Um, now, if the bank wants to avail itself of that protection under Article 4A, it really needs to get the customer to sign off, right. uh, you know, on that and sort of an yeah. consent kind of thing. And, right. and in, that, in that circumstance, you know, a customer... A customer may, when in the process of doing that, they may think to themselves, "Wait a minute, maybe I ought to, maybe I ought to take advantage <laughs> of this." If the bank's making me sign this statement that says I'm going to be on the hook for this, maybe I ought to step back and think about it. Um, but, but yeah, I think you're right. It, it is, a, it is an issue. It's a potential issue. Right, right. Let's talk a little bit about security breaches. We hear about them all the time. We've talked about them so many times. We hear about them in the news every day, whether it's Home Depot or whatever. So uh, what about data breaches? Uh, What's interesting about data breaches is there still is no federal law that governs what what businesses need to do to respond to them. And so there's a patchwork of of 50. It's not quite 50. I think there might be one. 47. Actually, okay, you know know better than I do. But there's a patchwork of, of, of laws with varying standards and varying requirements. And in Maine, there's one set of standards. And in, you know, California, there's a different one. And, you know, for, for businesses, it's not difficult now for businesses. It's not atypical for businesses to have customers in lots of different states. Even if they are a, you know, more you know, sort of quote-unquote local business, they might take credit cards. In sure. Maine, for example, okay, we got a lot of tourists in Maine. There sure. are a lot of businesses that take that take customer information from folks from all over the place who are traveling right. here. If they have a data breach, they've got to comply with the data breach notification statutes in the states where those customers live. They don't right. just look at the main statute. So, you know, we so for a customer in Maine who uh, for a business in Maine and this is sort of like, you know, we talked before about how businesses don't understand the law with respect to right. when they're hit by by a a cyber uh, 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 fraud. Similarly, when a cu- when I, I see a lot of circumstances where businesses will have a data breach. First of all, they don't really understand that they've had a data breach, but when they figure it out and they realize that they've got to provide notification under, you know, twenty-five 
different states' notification regimes, yeah, yeah. it becomes overwhelming. Yes. And they, A, they, it's hard for them to comply. Sometimes they just kind of throw their hands up. So if there was a federal standard, one set, you know, unitary federal standard, um, that would, uh, I think that would be a lot more efficient and, and, it, and it would really streamline things. Yeah, I, I don't have any problem with that as long as it's the highest bar. Like, you yeah, know, I would okay. be upset, for example, like we had the first security breach legislation in, really in the country. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, we even include such things as medical information. And so sure. I would just be, and, and our, we have a, a fail safe that if you um, have um, a breach of uh, sensitive information as defined by the code, and it's not encrypted, then you have a duty to notify all the potential victims. Okay. Mm-hmm. But if it's encrypted, you know, you're, you're off the hook. Yeah. Okay, you don't have to. That was the, the you know, I helped write that law. So I know it was, yeah. we had the, you know, we had all the benefits and the burden. So all yeah. you, you have to do is encrypt. So, I mean, if they water it down, I wouldn't be in favor. But if they keep it to the highest standard, I think that yeah. would be helpful because I'm sure it's a, a real problem. And a mom and pop can be, um, you know, have people from all over the world. It doesn't have to just be that people are tourists. You can be selling things on the Internet and then you're going to sure. be responsible for all these that, things, right? That's right. That's right. And looking at it from a business's, I mean, you're looking at it, you were speaking from a consumer's perspective, looking at it from a business's perspective, um, the problem they confront, the practical problem is they've got to comply with all these different Yes. You know, regimes, and, it, and it's really difficult to do. Um, so, but, and my yeah. guess is that on the federal level, we, we wouldn't see, I'm just guessing, I mean, given the fact that they haven't been able to enact anything yet at all, never mind a low bar, <laughs> uh, my guess is that we probably wouldn't see the highest bar. Yes, enacted. I know. That's the problem. Well, we are out of time, so just let's give your website, and you're just wonderful and filled with great information. Oh, well, thank information, you so much Dan. for giving me the opportunity. The website is www.bernsteinsure.com. And that's B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N-S-H-U-R.com. Dan Mitchell, you're terrific. We'll have you back in, again. Please stay in touch, okay? Yeah, thank you very much, Mari. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening bye-bye. to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KUCI and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.